We're in the middle of a series called Best Story Ever. We're looking at the Bible from 30,000 feet by taking 15 stories from the Old Testament, 15 stories from the New Testament, and doing a Bible overview. And one other thing to mention just at the beginning here, if you're new to Thrive or haven't been to Thrive in a while, what we've been doing is we've been pretty dramatically shortening the message in order to give more time in small groups for you to study the passage of Scripture that we're looking at together in groups. And so in just a few minutes, I'm going to pass out a handout with the text of tonight's passage on it. And that's for you to mark up. That's for you to keep if you want to. And there's some questions about the, the passage as well that are on that handout. So a really quick recap about where we've come from so far in the story of the Bible. God made a good world. When the story begins, the world is good the world is whole, nothing is broken, and nothing is missing. But then as we saw last week, humanity broke the world. We looked at the fall, which is the story of when Adam and Eve attempted to take God's place, and as a result, the world has never been the same. And one of the things we talked about was, what was the actual nature of what happened in the Garden of Eden? And one of the things that we said, which I'll just repeat because I think it's so important, is that sin is more than just rule-breaking. Sin is a form of self-love that instead of Adam and Eve loving God supremely and trusting God supremely, they loved themselves, they trusted themselves supremely, and put themselves in the place of God. And the result is alienation. So we're alienated from ourselves. We feel shame. We feel guilt. We no longer feel at home in our own skin. We feel alienated from each other. You know, we're so desperate to think well of ourselves that what do we do when we feel attacked, when we feel guilty? We blame shift. You know, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did. They blamed other people rather than taking responsibility themselves. And then last of all, and most importantly of all, sin alienates us from God. St. Augustine once said, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So what is it that marks existence in a world after the fall? Well, it's restlessness. It's exile. It's a feeling that you're cut off from the source of life and happiness that maybe you once knew but have, 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 have not, not been able to keep, not been able to hold on to. There was a, a famous neuroscientist, a, a British guy, who studied the brain and... and he wasn't a Christian, but I want to read you something that he wrote that was his conclusion about the human condition. Here's what he says. For all of us have a basic intuitive feeling that once we were whole and well, at ease, at home in the world, totally united with the grounds of our being, and that then we lost this primal, happy, innocent state and fell into our present sickness and suffering. We had something of infinite beauty and preciousness, and we lost it. We spend our lives searching for what we have lost, and one day, perhaps, we will suddenly find it. So here's a guy who's not even a believer in Jesus, and he's describing the very same thing that Genesis chapter 3 described for us last week. But the last thing to recap from last week is that God made a promise he doesn't just leave humanity in its state of brokenness, but he makes a promise. And the promise is in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent, the one who 
tempts Adam and Eve and kind of starts the whole domino effect. And he says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what that's saying is that there's going to be someone who will come along and crush the serpent's head. And we know that this person, whoever it is, is a human being. He's someone from Adam and Eve's line of descent. And whoever this person is, is going to effectively reverse the curse. They're going to crush the head of the serpent, which is a way of saying they're going to deal with the problem of sin at its very root. And whoever this person is will be the savior of the world. Now, that's, that's last week. What we're going to do tonight is, is we're going to move now to the next major chapter in the story. And this is the story of a guy named Abraham. And uh, we're going to be in chapters 11 and 12 of Genesis. Uh, you're actually going to want to have a Bible just because I'm going to talk about some other things before that. So if you have a Bible, grab a Bible. And then if someone wouldn't mind helping pass these out, this is our handout for tonight. Thank you, guys. So tonight's story is about a man named Abram. Just by the way, he, his name is Abram, but then God changes his name a little later to Abraham. So I might use those two names interchangeably. And as you're going to see in small groups tonight, God calls Abram to separate from his friends, his family, and his home. And he tells him to go to a faraway country called Canaan. I think it was something like 800 miles from the city that Abraham was from. Abraham was a city slicker. He was from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. It was kind of like the New York City of the ancient world. So imagine if you're a, a city, city slicker like Abraham and God tells you to move to the boonies, just how, how that would feel. That's what God calls Abraham to do. And I'm not going to read this passage. I'm going to let you guys read it in small groups tonight. But what I want to do is I want to help set it up by just providing a little bit of the context of this story, of uh, the context of this story. Um, Ooh, you know what? I actually need, can I, can I grab another volunteer? Um, just to run to grab something really quick for me. Um, well, actually, maybe someone who, uh, Tristan, can I pick on you? If you go into the Thrive office, um, there should be, I, I, I don't want to give it away. There's a blue plastic object that's sitting on the floor, <laughs> and I forgot to grab it. Would you mind grabbing that really quick? <clears throat> Gosh, now I have to stall for time while I'm waiting for the mysterious blue plastic object. Uh, anyone? <laughs> it's not a bucket. The, the name of the book that we are in tonight in answer to that question is Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Oh, that book. That is a book called Awakenings. Awakenings by Oliver Sacks, S-A-C-K-S. Oliver Sacks. Ah, the blue plastic object has arrived. Okay, who knows what this is? I think everybody probably knows what this is, but who can say what this is? It's a funnel. A funnel. Now, a funnel is an object. This one happens to be a blue plastic object. It's an object that converges from broad to narrow. So, you know, broad top, big top, and then it converges to, to this little narrow little, you know, little opening. And this actually is a picture of the shape of the entire Old Testament. 
the Old Testament, if you want to remember kind of the whole point of what the Old Testament's about, just remember the Old Testament is shaped like a funnel. Because what the Old Testament does is it's one long search to find who is going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. That's what the Old Testament's about. Genesis 3.15 starts out broad. You know, all we know about the promised deliverer is that it's a human being. <laughs> it's someone who's a descendant of Adam and Eve. That's really the extent of what we know to identify them. But in order to know more about who he is, the rest of the Old Testament narrows. It zooms in. And it zooms in pretty dramatically. I mean, notice that Genesis begins at the kind of the grandest possible scope. It's the creation of the cosmos. But then it immediately narrows. And, and look at how it narrows. So I told you you might want to have a Bible in front of you. Flip to Genesis chapter 4. So Genesis chapter 4, it's after Adam and Eve have been driven out of the Garden of Eden. And there's this famous story about these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Now, if you're Adam and Eve and you've been given this promise by God that there's going to be this, this deliverer that is going to be one of your children, you might actually look at Cain and say, well, you know, Cain is the, you know, he's kind of the, the older child. Maybe he's the one that is supposed to be that promised deliverer. You know, back then, the, the older children were kind of the, the oldest child was the one that had the priority. Well, we know it can't be Cain because Cain becomes a murderer and God uh, gives him a punishment for that. And, you know, they also might have thought, well, maybe it's actually Abel. Maybe Abel is this promised deliverer because Abel makes a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And so perhaps they thought Abel was the promised deliverer. But then what do you find out in chapter four? <laughs> you find out it can't be Abel because Cain kills him. But go to the very last verse of chapter 4, uh, or I think it's the last verse, verse 25. This is after the Cain and Abel story. Adam and Eve have another son whose name is Seth. And look at what Eve says. It says, uh, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Now it's kind of a little bit funny. You know, why would they need another child to replace the other one? It could very well be that they're thinking perhaps, perhaps Seth, maybe he's the one who's going to be the promised deliverer. Well, then what comes after that? Look at the very next chapter. The very next chapter, what do you've got? You've got a genealogy. Now, a genealogy, what is that? A genealogy traces a particular family line. So let me give you an example. My great-grandfather, or I should say, one of my great-grandfathers, you actually have a lot of them. <laughs> my, one of my great-grandfathers was a man named Hermanus Bernardus Johannes Wentink. Hermanus Bernardus Johannes Wentink. Wentink. It's a pretty good Dutch name. That's why I'm tall. It's because I'm Dutch. <laughs> Now, my great-grandfather, Hermanus Bernardus Johannes Wintink, has around 50, um, if not 100 descendants that you could name. So if, imagine that I were to write a genealogy that started with him, and then it passes through my grandmother, and then through my father, and then it comes down, let's say, to my sister. You know, let's say that my sister is the end point of that genealogy. She's one of the close to 100 descendants of Hermanus, Hermanus Bernardus Johannes Wintink. <laughs> now, 
if she's the endpoint of that genealogy, what I'm sort of saying through that genealogy is that, that you know, my sister is the, the focal point. You know, I'm choosing to exclude, you know, 99 some other people that were also descendants of that same person. My sister is the focal point of that genealogy. So Genesis is chalked full of genealogies. And one of the questions that I would encourage you to wrestle with in small groups tonight is what purpose might they serve in trying to show us who the promised Messiah is going to be? So, you know, you read those genealogies and you sort of think, these are so boring. Why are these in the Bible? Oh, no, 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 no. Sometimes the genealogies are actually the most important details in some of these books. Now, the one in Genesis 5 that we're looking at here, this one has a particularly famous person who's the end point of that genealogy. Anyone see who it is? Just shout it out if you've got it there. Noah. Yeah. Genesis chapter 5 takes you from Adam all the way to a guy named Noah. Now, Noah. Uh, Noah sounds like the Hebrew word that means comfort. And notice, look at verse 29. Noah's father says, or it says of Noah's father. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So do you see what he's saying? Noah's father says, maybe Noah is going to be the promised deliverer. Maybe he's the, you know, the, 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 the focal point of the funnel. <laughs> well, then we have after that, what do we have? It's the story of the flood, Noah and the flood. And, you know, you might actually think that Noah's dad might be onto something because Noah is said to be a righteous man. He's a righteous man in his generation out of all of the, the rest of humanity that scripture tells us after hundreds and hundreds of years of opportunity had so corrupted itself that the flood is brought in as a judgment. Well, you might think if Noah is one of the, the, the remnant, if he's the, the righteous man in his generation, it would make a lot of sense that maybe he's that promised deliverer. But then flip to chapter 9. Look at what happens to Noah after the flood. You know, maybe you know the story. Uh, the story is recorded that after the flood, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Now, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 3, in response to man's sin, do you ever notice that God doesn't actually curse Adam and Eve? What he does instead is he curses the ground. He tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And that you're going to have to work for your food through painful toil and sweat, blood, sweat, and tears. And, and what's the other detail that's said there? It says that the ground is now going to produce thorns and thistles. So the brokenness of the earth, of, of the created world, of the ground, that is a sign or a manifestation of the presence of sin in the world. And so what do we have in Genesis chapter 9? We see that Noah who you know, we might have hoped was going to be the one to reverse the curse, now you know, he, to reverse the curse of, of, of the ground. Now Noah is conquered by the cursed ground itself. Do you see that? That through a lack of self-control, you know, the, the wine that he drinks, which is the fruit of the ground, overcomes him. And it's the way the author of Genesis is telling us Noah isn't the one. He isn't the deliverer that we had hoped for after all. So do you, see the, do you see the funnel 
Do you see the funnel? Now let's keep going. What happens next? What happens next? Look at chapter 10. In chapter 10, there's what's called the table of the nations. It's a list of all the descendants who came from Noah and his three sons. So the earth has been wiped out by the flood. And so this represents a fresh start for humanity. This is a, a, a new beginning, a new opportunity for humanity not to fall into the violence and into the depravity that brought about the flood, maybe even to be reconciled to God. But then what happens in chapter 11? In chapter 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. And what that story is about is it's a, an episode sometime after the flood when the people of the earth come together to build a tower. And it's a tower that it says reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's the purpose of building the tower. What does it mean when you make a name for yourself? That's an expression that we use in English sometimes. You know, like if you've got, a, if you've got someone who, let's say, uh, let's say is the opposite of Abraham. Let's say you've got someone who's kind of a, you know, a country boy and then he goes off to Hollywood and he, you know, comes from nothing and then he makes it really big in the movie industry and everyone knows his name. He's a household name. You know, that would be an example of what we would say in English is someone making a name for themselves. So basically what that phrase means for us is it's when you achieve greatness for yourself, by yourself. Greatness for yourself, by yourself. And so when the text tells us that the Tower of Babel was intended for humanity to make a name for itself, that is signaling to us that this is another manifestation of the reality of sin. That it's humanity banding together in a bid to be independent from God. And by the way, just notice tonight when you come to the story of Abraham, notice that in verse 2, one of the things that God promises Abraham is he says, I will make your name great. I will make your name great. Not you will make a great name for yourself, but I will make your name great. We live in a culture that says you have to create your own identity for yourself. So just look deep inside your heart. Decide what desires are wandering around in there. They're probably going to be different with each passing day because sometimes I wake up in the morning and my desires have totally changed. Maybe you've had that experience. But the culture says, look into your heart, find your desires, and that is who you are. And don't you dare let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let them contradict your, your narrative or your story. That's the way of the culture. The way of the gospel is the opposite. It says our identities aren't invented. They're actually discovered. That we come to be most truly ourselves when we come most truly to be who God has made us to be. Make a great name for yourself versus I will make your name great. Note the contrast. So, here's where we've gotten to so far. We're almost to Abraham. We're almost to Abraham. But here, here's what we've found out so far. We've basically just seen the story of the fall on repeat for the last several chapters. Do you notice this? That, you know, the story of Noah, it ends in failure. Uh, and then if you put together the math with some of these genealogies, what you find out is that there's actually a lot of time that's passed in just these few chapters. If you put all the, the, the numbers together, which you can actually calculate, more than 2,000 years have elapsed between Adam and Abraham. You know, so think about what happened, you know, 2,000 years ago from 2022 
So you know, that, that feels like a long time ago to us. That's how much time has passed in just these few chapters. And so that means that after 2,000 years of human activity, what can we conclude? Humanity is incapable of making itself right with God. Humanity on its own can't reverse the curse. So what's God going to do? <laughs> you know, it's been said, only God can make a masterpiece out of the materials that he had to work with. Well, <laughs> look at the materials that God had to work with. What's he going to do? How is he going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 to save the world? Well, after the Tower of Babel, God, it says, scatters the peoples. Uh, he gives them separate languages. Uh, it's probably why the first part, this part of Genesis is the first time we actually even see the word nation. You know, nations actually didn't exist at a certain point. Uh, and now they arise at this point in the narrative. In chapter 10, it lists them out for you, nation after nation after nation. There's 70 of them, all of which were a part of the rebellion that occurred at Babel. So what we can conclude is that when Abraham's story begins, it begins at a time of enormous spiritual darkness in the history of humanity. All the nations are going astray. The knowledge of the true God is at risk of perishing from the face of the earth. And so into that darkness, what does God do? God says, I am going to make a nation for myself. I am going to make a nation for myself. And what he does is call a man named Abraham to do that. Let me read just a couple of verses. This is chapter 12, so it's actually about midway down your page. Just the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Those verses, by the way, those are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible. This is almost like a, a springboard that sets up God's rescue plan for the entire rest of the story. And as you look at this passage tonight, I want to just really quickly, I want to give you three themes to notice here. Theme number one is the, the theme of promise. So there's a number of promises in this passage. In just those three verses that I read, there's actually seven of them. See if you can name what each of those seven is tonight. But there's a couple that are worth notice, noticing in particular. Three major promises that characterize God's promise overall to Abraham. And the three things are blessing, land, and a seed. Blessing, land, and a seed. So blessing, look at verses 2 and 3. One of the things that God says to Abraham is that I will bless you. He also says, I will bless those who bless you. He even says, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So part of the promise to Abraham is the promise of blessing. And then notice in verse 7, part of the promise involves land. God tells Abraham that this land of Canaan that he travels to is going to be given to him and to his descendants as an everlasting possession. So part of the promise is blessing, part of the promise is land, and then last of all, 
there's a promise about a seed. Now, what it literally uh, means when it says uh, in verse 7 there about, about the land, it says in uh, this translation, this is the ESV, to your offspring I will give this land. It literally means to your seed I will give this land. So what, is this, you know, what does seed mean? Seed, I mean, it means offspring. It means your offspring uh, that comes from you, from your, your line. Uh, they're involved in this promise as well. And I'm not going to spill the beans, but by the time you get to the New Testament, this idea of the promised seed is absolutely crucial to how the whole story fits together. Uh, if you really want to be an eager beaver tonight, just go read Galatians chapter 3. Look where Paul talks about the promised seed. Okay, so the three major parts of the promise, blessing, land, and a seed. Blessing, land, and a seed. If you want to read through the Old Testament and really have it open up to you, Follow those themes. Just look for blessing, look for land, look for seed. It'll make a lot of things open up in a new way. And then one last promise that I want to draw particular attention to is the one in verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth, that would include everybody. <laughs> that would include every human who's ever lived. So do you see what the promise is? Somehow, through Abraham and his family... Every person who's ever lived is going to be blessed by God through Abraham. Now, at the time, the readers of Genesis may not have known what that promise was referring to, but thousands of years after Abraham, we can know what that means. Hundreds of years after this story, there was a descendant of Abraham born whose name was Jesus. He lived a sinless life that perfectly represented God on the earth. And at the very climax of his life, Jesus died as a sacrifice. And maybe you remember that death was the very consequence that God said would happen to Adam and Eve because of their sin. And when Jesus died, he was crowned with a crown of thorns, which is the very symbol of the curse. Jesus is the way that all of the nations have been blessed through Abraham. So theme number one is promise. And then theme number two is faith. One of the things that you will probably see as you look, read what happens to Abraham is that God calls him to pretty remarkable faith. Verse 4 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 tells us that God's work is by faith. God's work is always by faith. And so that's why Abraham is sometimes called the man of faith. He's an example of what faith in God looks like. But as you look at this tonight, I want you just to, I want to have you put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I want you to imagine that God gives you a call like this and, and to reflect on, you know, how did Abraham do this? Did he do it well? And what are areas in our own lives where God's calling us to step out in faith before we maybe see the end from the beginning? One thing that I want to draw your attention to regarding faith. Look at verse 1. God tells Abraham, go from your country, separate from your family, your friends, from your home country. So he says, go in verse 1, and then look down at verse 7. Abraham arrives in the land, and only after he arrives does God say, to your offspring, I will give this land. So it's only after Abraham has faith and obeys that he even learns that he's, it's like he's a on the price is right, and he opens up the door, and it's, you know, it's a new car. You know, it's like, you, you get up a, a big piece of Mediterranean real estate. <laughs> so, 
this is how faith works. It's always go before give. You're probably going to have no idea what God has in store for you. If he's calling you to step out in faith, it might seem really, really scary. But if God is calling you to step out in faith, then step out in faith. Because it's go before give. And then last of all, last of all, the last theme just to meditate on tonight is actually the theme of revival. It's the theme of revival. Remember that this story happens at one of the darkest moments of humanity. And what's so remarkable about how God turns the tide, reverses the picture, is it begins with one person. It begins with one person. And this is always how God works throughout history. God will bring corporate, corporate revival through personal renewal. God brings corporate revival through personal renewal. At the dawn of the Reformation, when the gospel, the biblical gospel, had largely been displaced by all kinds of, of bad teaching about how you can kind of you know, use money to, to pay for indulgences so that you can get out of purgatory faster. A lot of things that had seeped in through poor Catholic doctrine. You know, a guy named Martin Luther is living in that world just trying to find out how on earth can I please God? And God uses that one guy. He radically rocks his world because Martin Luther, one day he's reading the Bible, he discovers, oh my goodness, the righteousness of God is a gift. Like, God is the one who makes me righteous. It's not buying indulgences. It's not all my good works. It's not praying hours and hours a day. It's the, it, I can't add anything to the work of Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus, 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 nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. God begins with one man and brings about the greatest revival that's ever been seen in church history. Maybe you've heard of the Methodists before. The Methodists are a denomination. But do you know that they began with a couple brothers named John and Charles Wesley? And if you study that story, you find out, you know, thinking of John Wesley in particular, God grabs a hold of the heart of John Wesley and brings personal renewal to John Wesley's life. And then he winds up being mightily used of God to bring about massive revival all over England, all over America, and what's called the First Great Awakening. God brings corporate revival through personal renewal. And I want to challenge you to ask, are you someone that God can use to bring corporate revival? Are you pursuing personal renewal in your own life, coming before Jesus and saying, Jesus, if this is all the Christianity there is, then the thing that I've got is a fraud. I'm not going to be satisfied with as much of you as I have, and I'm not going to rest until I've got more of you than what I've got. Are you the kind of person that God can use to bring corporate revival to a world that desperately needs it? That's how it starts with Abraham, and that's how it can start with us. So there's our chapter. I'm going to let you guys go study that now in small groups, and we'll come back here at 9.05 for one final song. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that you are a God who brings light into darkness. And Father, I pray that we, you would use us uh, to bring light into darkness, just as you used Abraham to bring about the greatest salvation in the history of humanity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.